Let man then contemplate the whole of nature in its lofty and full majesty, and let him avert his view from the lowly objects around him. Let him behold that brilliant light set like an eternal lamp to illuminate the universe. Let the earth seem to him like a point in comparison with the vast orbit described by that star. Blaise Pascal Pensez. That's the quote that I have on one of the front flyleaves of my new translation of Cicero's Tusculan Disputations. And I think I like uh, I like that quote by Pascal. And I think it says a great deal about the content of Tusculan Disputations. And in this podcast, what I'm going to do is to talk about the work, what it is about, what its contents are, and why I think it's something that you would enjoy reading and get a great deal out of, not just now, but as your life unfolds in the years ahead. Because books like this, classics, works of classic literature like this, works of classic literature, they don't reveal their secrets in one sitting. You can't expect to extract all of the nutrients out of such a fountainhead all at once. It, it's going to reveal itself gradually over time. And even if you don't get everything on the first, the first iteration, you will somehow get enough inside you. And then in the future, when you turn back to it at certain points in your life, it'll mean more to you. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about each of the five books of Tusculan Disputations and then talk about, oh, just various comments about it. Well, as I say in the foreword to the book, and you can find the book on my website, it's available for purchase in all the major bookstores, uh, Amazon, uh, the Book Depository, Barnes & Noble, all the major book uh, outlets. But Tusculan Disputations is Cicero's longest work. It's his longest work of philosophy, and in many ways, it's his most readable. It's his most thorough in its treatment of various uh, philosophical questions. It's meant, it was meant for a large audience because the topics that it deals with are of perennial and universal concern, as we'll see. Now, in all probability, Cicero began composing the Tusculan Disputations in the latter half of 45 BC, after completing his treatise on Moralands, which I've also translated and which you, you can also find. And um, he was on a roll, for lack of a better word. He was writing furiously because in many ways, I think Cicero knew that his days were numbered. And there's nothing like knowing that you're a hunted man to focus your energies and focus your attentions. But the book is a series of dialogues that take place at one of his residences at the town of Tusculum, which is... Um, which has today basically been subsumed by the, the town of uh, Frascati, which is outside of Rome, which I've been to. A very, very charming place. Very, very peaceful place. And Cicero essentially did what we would today describe maybe as seminars there. He, he invited guests over. He would have discussions. And we don't know the names of the interlocutors, the speakers of Tusculan Disputations, but we do know that they were probably younger than him, probably students, 
Uh, Cicero was an elder man of uh, the world, as elder statesman. He liked to be surrounded by, by uh, you know, young men of good character that he could train and impart his knowledge about philosophy to. So that's really lends lends a very personal aspect to this work of of literature. So one of Cicero's goals for the Tusculans was to give the average Roman an acquaintance with the significance of moral philosophy. He says, um, for if I have been useful to my fellow citizens during my political career, my hope is that I may likewise prove useful to them, if possible, in my retirement. So these are the subjects that he talks about in this work. The first book deals with the fear of death and why we should not fear death. The second book talks about enduring pain. The third book talks about handling anxiety and distress. The fourth book discusses the various other disorders of the mind or the soul. And the fifth and final book brings his uh, brings everything together where he talks about whether virtue alone is sufficient for leading a happy life. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what questions really can be more important than these? How can anyone not want to investigate these issues? How could anyone not want to discuss these issues? So these are the these are the these are the topics discussed in Tusculan Disputations. So let's start with the first book. Let's start with the first book, which discusses the fear of death. And you know, most people will not admit to being nervous about discussing death, but let's face it, in the back of everyone's mind, everyone I think is a little bit apprehensive about death because you never really know what's out there. Is it what 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 really is death? Is it something that we should be worried about or something we should just completely ignore? I think any thinking person while they may not be paralyzed by this type of question, they're going to be thinking about it. But Cicero approaches the subject in a very, very systematic way. And I think that book one of Tusculans is a fantastic, uh, just an absolute brilliant performance and could stand alone as a treatise and is alone worth uh, getting just, just to read the first book. But he refutes the thesis that death is an evil. Uh, the question is posed, uh, Cicero essentially says that death is not an evil to the dead or to the living. He says basically that the dead do not suffer the stories of these punishments that we've heard about in, in legends and, and myths are, are simply fables. But even if death is an annihilation, then um, the dead are not unhappy because they have no, they don't feel anything. And the living should not fear death because uh, it can't bring them any misfortune. It can't bring them any evil. And uh, for this reason, death is not only not an evil, but is, but is in fact a blessing. And to understand why this is so, we have to consider the nature of death and the nature of the soul. And there's a lot of discussion of the soul in the first book of Tusculans. And... Um, if the soul is material and perishes, uh, then there's no feeling after death. I mean, if the soul is immortal, then it's destined to be happy and, and death is, uh, is not a blessing. And frankly, uh, Cicero advances the, idea that the, advances the idea that the soul is immortal. Uh, and this is proven by the fact that uh, the great philosophers of antiquity believe this to be the case. Most people believe this to be the case. And um, 
the interest uh, taken by the living um, in the welfare of, uh, of future generations of man. So the immortality of the soul is also uh, proven by the, the, the nature of the soul itself, the soul's powers, um, and the unity of the soul. And he goes into great, de great detail about this, and it's really, really worth reading because we don't think of these subjects very often in our, obviously, our day-to-day -day lives. And at some point, you, I think you really have to. You really have to. And uh, Cicero also spends a great deal of time refuting the arguments that argue that the soul is not immortal, specifically the, um, the, uh, you know, the, the inconsistencies and problems with other philosophers' ideas on the, the mortality of the soul. But finally, even if death destroys both the body and the soul, it, it's not an evil, because, uh, frankly, there would be no feeling after death, and the, the pain uh, involved in death lasts very, very briefly. It's only lasts for a very short period of time. And, um, uh, you know, the, the dead who are unconscious cannot really feel anything uh, in comparison to the, um, the living. So this is why a life based on virtue gives us the courage to deal with these things. And this is why we should always focus our attention on why virtue is so critical. Now, obviously, I'm summarizing the first book of the Tusculan Disputations. It's a, it's a summary. I'm just, I've just given just a brief and a summary. And I do this in the introduction to the book. I, every, the, the book, my translation of, of uh, the Tusculan Disputations has a foreword, a detailed foreword. It also has a detailed introduction where we go through the each book and we summarize it so that you can kind of know what uh, what its contents are before you read it, which I think helps. So that's the that's the first book of the um, of the Tusculan Disputations. So let's move on now to the second book. What um, what's uh, you know what are the what are the contents of the um, of the second book here. Let's let's take a look here and see what uh, see what that says. Okay, I'm going through my introduction here as I read this off or as I summarize this stuff to you. Uh, so the subject discussed in the second book is pain. Is pain really the greatest evil? And Cicero begins the analysis of this question after a brief introdu introduction. He talks about some contrary views of Epicureans who believe that uh, pain is the greatest evil. Cicero dislikes that idea because he believes that pain is an unavoidable part of life. And he says that uh, learning to endure it is something that every seeker of virtue must accept. He says, we must not ask whether pain is an evil. Rather, we should fortify the soul in order to bear pain's burdens. The Stoics weave their petty syllogisms to explain why pain is not an evil, as if the issue can be clarified with verbal artifices instead of looking at the nature of the subject. And this is a great quote that I talk about there in the introduction. So, but on the other hand, Cicero also rejects the Stoic position, which, which uh, occupies the opposite extreme. The Stoics believe that pain should not be considered an evil at all. Now, Cicero was a practical man. He, he feels that this position, position is absurd and that for anyone to say that pain is not an evil is simply being ridiculous because let's face it, pain hurts. It is an evil to some extent. 
But Cicero has a very nuanced, practical view about this fact. And he says that, look, even though it is an evil, it's not a supreme evil. And we have to accept uh, physical pain and mental and emotional pain as a necessary part of life. And Cicero believes that the Aristotelians or the Peripatetics have taken the most reasonable stance. Pain should be counted as an evil, they say, but there are other evils that are worse than pain. We can train our minds and our bodies to endure pain if we adopt the right techniques. And this is where in, in the second book, Cicero talks about Spartan youths, some of their techniques that they have for enduring pain, how they've trained their bodies to do so. And Cicero also talks about how the study of wisdom, the practice of virtue, and the imitation of great men can help us bear our sufferings. So examples from literature and history point to the conclusion that even if pain is an evil, it is not the worst evil. So that is book two. So let's talk about book three now. This is the book. The book three is about, about the unburdening of sorrow or, or the alleviation of distress, how to alleviate our sorrow, how to lighten our distress, how to how to um, ameliorate these types of pains. And to keep it very, very simple for this podcast, uh, Cicero talks about the different types of, of distresses. It begins with eloquent observations on the origin of, origins of sicknesses of the soul and the nature of false glory. Philosophy, he says, is the medicine of the soul and can be used to cure its ailments. He says, there surely exists a medicine for the soul, and it is philosophy. We must seek its help not from, not, uh, not from the outside, as we do with bodily ailments. We must exert ourselves intensely, deploying all our efforts and powers so that we can act as our own healers. So we have to act as our own self-healers with our study of philosophy and virtue. And this is, this is so true. This is so true you'll find as you go through life because other people can't really do it for us. We have to do it for ourselves. So what exactly is this uh, sorrow? The, the Latin word is agritudo. Agritudo, what is it? It's mental distress appears to be a disorder of the mind. The Stoics take the position that courage and mental anguish are not consistent with each other. But the wise man will not be affected by this kind of sorrow. Um, anxiety is the worst type of disorder of the mind. And when we truly examine the question of anxiety, we find that it is based on our own views and judgments. And this is a critical observation. In other words, it is we who determine whether we feel anxiety or not. By anticipating the arrival of bad events or by forming a preconceived view of or by forming preconceived views about things, we create and we nurture our own mental distresses. Cicero's discussion of anxiety and sorrow leads him to many astute psychological insights, among them, which is this, this quote here, and just as pity is anxiety generated by someone else's adversities, so jealousy is anxiety provoked by someone else's good fortune. Therefore, he who is inclined to pity others is equally inclined to envy others. And I thought that was a, a very, very astute observation. When you think about it, it's very true. And I included that in my inter introduction. So the Epicureans claim that alleviation of anxiety can be found by shifting our attention to other matters. And there are some, Cicero talks about other competing views about this. 
But at the, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, we voluntarily shoulder the burdens of anxiety and distress by our own mistaken ways of thinking. It's we who create these problems for ourselves. Our own erroneous beliefs and judgments create and sustain these anxieties. So people believe they ought to feel distress, but the emotion serves no useful purpose. And we should never get used to it as something that's natural and something that is normal. All right. So let's talk now about the fourth book of the Tusculans. The fourth book of the Tusculans continues and elaborates on the points presented in the third book. It contains many terms and definitions which may seem to slow down the flow of the discussion, but are necessary because Cicero is big on, on definitions. And you have, to, you have to admire this. You have to go through these definitions. You have to actually see what's being talked about because we can't be careless in what we are labeling. So book four has some interesting, very interesting sections in it. I, I thought one of the more interesting ones was his assertion that the philosophy of Pythagoras, the Pythagorean philosophy, was influential in Rome's formative period. And um, this is a very curious view, and I, I, it doesn't seem to be sustained by, by archaeologists and historians, but who knows? Cicero was probably closer to the issue than we were, so maybe we should take him at his word about it. So he begins by talking about mental perturbations, perturbationes, and there are four of them, anxiety, joy, fear, and desire. And the basis of mental disorder is our own bad judgment, which is against nature and reason. Now, perturbations of the mind are essentially desire or hostility. And there are differences between disorders of the body and disorders of the mind. Afflictions of the mind originate in our rejection of reason. So the wise man will not fall victim to such perturbations. This is because his mastery of virtue gives him the use of reason and mental distress cannot flourish when reason is in control. The uh, peripatetics take the view that perturbations of the mind are expected and natural, and the emotions of anger, lust, competitiveness, envy, and pity are examined. A man cannot be considered virtuous, according to the Stoics, unless he has freed himself from mental perturbation and the beliefs that produced such distresses. So... The ultimate conclusion of, of book four is the same as what was pointed out in the third book, which is that perturbations of the, of the mind are matters of choice. They're matters of choice. And, you know, this is such a I, I can't emphasize enough how important this conclusion is, because this is something I've noticed in my own life, that when you're trying to free yourself of anxiety and distress and, and uh, these types of adverse emotions, we have to constantly remind ourselves that we take these burdens on voluntarily. We really do take these burdens on voluntarily, either, either because we think we ought to, or we've been conditioned to do that from birth, or that some other force is acting on us to make us adopt these views. So, you you really have to examine this from a logical perspective and see Cicero go through the rational reasoning reasoning process that brings him to these conclusions and and then you'll then you'll really have the conviction of knowing that you're right about it. We allow ourselves to be afflicted by these things, and we do so because of our mistakes in properly judging various different things. The only way to remove disorders of the mind is through the study of philosophy. Now. The fifth book is perhaps, along with book one, the greatest 
of the books of the Tusculan Disputations, and it brings everything together with Cicero's usual brilliant and eloquent and sublime rhetoric. And it unifies the topics presented in the preceding books. So the question of the, the fifth book is that whether virtue is sufficient alone for living a happy life. And Cicero says, yes, that it is. And Cicero first begins by examining some of views of other philosophers like Antiochus of Ascalon, Theophrastus, the Epicureans. But a truly happy man must not fear the loss of something, and courage that is mixed with fear is not true courage. He goes on to say, Cicero goes on to say that grief and fear come from evils conjured up by the mind, while desire and pleasure come from goods conjured up by the mind. Moral, moral rectitude alone is good and provides happiness. An external good cannot really be called a true good. The happy life must be dependent on virtue, and all analysis points to this conclusion. In fact, he says the happy life concentrates and congeals the virtues. And he says with this quote, Yet this is impossible under any circumstance. The virtues cannot adhere together without a happy life, nor can a happy life be in harmony without the virtues. Since vice makes life miserable, virtue clearly makes life happy. And then Cicero gives many examples from literature and philosophy, uh, literature and history of good and bad leaders. But we underestimate, really, how easy it is to find happiness if only we know how to look for it. Happiness is possible even in the midst of the most terrible sufferings. The wise man can be happy even if he lives in obscurity, even if he is underappreciated, or even if he finds himself in exile. Neither blindness nor deafness can prevent the wise man from being happy. We can choose to be miserable, or we can choose to seek a happy life. And again, he turning back to the idea of choice. In the end, all of us must make a conscious decision between these alternatives. He says, quote, As I see it, in life we should keep to the guiding principle that the Greeks apply at their dinner parties. He says, let him either drink or leave. This is a great, this is a great quote here. Um, you know, the Latin phrase there is um, um, uh, aut bibat, aut abeat. Let him either drink or leave. In other words, either you're there to enjoy the party of life or get out of here. Either, either enjoy it or not. Either, you know, kind of just like the old adage of uh, Shawshank Redemption, the movie, get busy living or get busy dying. You've only, you know, you've got this life to live and you've got to pick the tools that, you, that are available to you to help you lead this life in a happy way. Um, so clearly it is true that virtue itself is sufficient for living a happy life. And Cicero closes the book, uh, closes book five by stating that philosophy has been a way for him to deal with his own sufferings, which were considerable. And I talk about this in the foreword to the, to the translation, which is that this book this book was written at a time when Cicero was really at rock bottom. You know, his he had been his career had come to a, an abrupt conclusion by the Civil War and by the closure of the courts and the political system. Uh, he knew he was essentially a hunted man who had a limited amount of time left. Uh, his marriages to the um, to the uh, to his his older wife. Um, uh, had ended in failure. His older wife, had ended, uh, Terentia, had, had ended in failure, and his uh, marriage to the much longer Publilia had also ended in, 
in um, in failure. So the, he was profoundly disillusioned. You know, his worst, all of his worst fears had um, had come true. And uh, you know, we can't, in in many ways, help help uh, feel sympathy for Cicero. At least I do. Because I think that this was a man who, who clearly was a man of principle, who believed in what he was doing. He passionate, passionately believed in philosophy's redemptive powers, and he was ardent in his desire to bring these lessons uh, to the Roman people and to uh, get them introduced to the study of these, of these uh, sublime subjects. And in many ways, I think that's a lesson that carries over to the, to the, to the modern era. Uh, I chose to translate this work because, frankly, I felt it was drastically underappreciated. I felt it the time had come to do it. Like I say in the introduction, there there had been no there's been no original, complete, modern translation of this uh, classic since the 1920s. I think the the only one existing, um, the only modern uh, translation uh, that's in print uh, in English is uh, is dates from 1927. No one has done a complete translation of this work since then and that's why and frankly the one that one is unreadable it's simply unreadable it just you can't get anything out of it it's just it's 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 just not in my opinion uh, uh, uh you know something that a modern reader can make any use of so these were the reasons behind why i did this and i personally am very very fascinated by all of these subjects and i i want you to be fascinated by them as well i want you to to devote some time thinking about these things because you may not think that the act of, of pondering these subjects is, is going to benefit you, but in the long run, it really will. Because getting into the habit of thinking about these, these subjects, it, it imparts something to your soul. It makes you a richer person, a better person. And these are the kind of things that are going to carry you over and when, when tough times come, which they inevitably will. And if you really look at this book, you'll find that it'll be a resource that you will turn to and refer to and go back to in years, uh, years ahead, many years down the line, you will, you trust me, you, you will you will refer to it. It'll be a lifelong possession. It'll be something that you can make use of uh, for decades to come. So those are the books of the Tusculan Disputations. And again, you can find it uh, on uh, Amazon, the Book Depository, all the major booksellers on my on my website. Uh, there's also links everywhere on the front the homepage on the right side of the screen to the book. So I hope you'll consider looking at it. And if you have any questions, feel free to email me. Until then, I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.